What About Us, a podcast that discusses how policies affect rural Tennesseans. My name is Sandy Rice, and What About Us is part of the Tennessee Holler Podcast Network. Go to tnholler.com and check out the other podcasts and programs, sign up for the newsletter, and throw in some support if you like what you see. Tennessee Holler is, after all, people-powered. My guest today is Mariah Phillips. She is a candidate for State House Representative in District 37 and a good friend of mine. This gal is outstanding. So she and I are going to talk about, is it is right to work right for voting Tennesseans? Welcome, Mariah. Thank and you so much, Sandy. I'm so glad that you have me on. <laughs> glad to. Okay, so we're continuing with our rural candidates um, and discussions. So, right to work. Um, what's a definition for that? Let's, let's figure out what we're talking about. Yeah, so it sounds really good, right? Um, the right to work uh, has been a law here in the state of Tennessee since 1947. This law is a fundamental law that allows workers the freedom to choose whether or not they want to join a, a union in their workplace. That's really what it's about. It's about unions in the workplace. Right to work is also known as workplace freedom or workplace choice. And all of that sounds really good until you really understand what that means for the workers. What it does is it actually takes away the rights of working people and puts all of the authority in the hands of the corporations. People who support this law say that it protects you from the unions but they leave out that over centuries, unions have protected the workers. So it basically further rigs the system towards the big business at the expense of working families. So federal law already makes it illegal to force someone to join a union, but these laws make it harder for working people to form the unions and collectively bargain for better wages, benefits, and working conditions. So it's really not all it cracks up to be, uh, even though it's cleverly titled The Right to Work. Oh, rights and choice and freedom. And we all love those words. We and do. It, and I think going back a little bit into history, which everybody knows I like to do, you know, the Industrial Revolution after the turn of the century is really why unions, I think, came about. Because yes. the working conditions were so terrible. Pay was low. Um, children were working, uh, there was long hours for, you know, minimal pay. And so it was kind of a, um, it was an organizing for the rights of the workers, for things to be uh, fair, especially when companies were doing well. And not just fair, Sandy, but safe as well. Safe, um, right. You know, the, you know, things like union organizing and workplace organizing has given us things like, you know, fire escapes in buildings right, right. Um, because, you know, the Triangle Fire in Chicago um, where, you know, there were hundreds of women um, and tens, tens of women, dozens of women actually died in a mm. workplace fire because of a lit cigarette that, yeah. um, you know, they, and they weren't able to leave their building because um, they only had one entrance in and out from a four-story building. And so having unions and organized labor has actually helped increase everyone's safety, right. whether their, their business is unionized or not. The 40-hour work week is from the union. Yes. And I believe Labor Day. Um, Labor Day, I heard someone talking about 
um, activities and say, well, that's what Labor Day is all about, picnics and having fun. I'm like, no, it's not. Wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, they pave the way for things to be good and for things to be the way they are. Um, and it was abused, like all good things are subject to abuse. When abuse, we had union bosses and the political machines. Uh, in Chicago, there was a, a, you know, a link to politics that was a little bit unsavory. And I also think that, that as they declined in popularity, the unions, you know, there was this um, stable um, expectations for companies to do the right thing. Yeah, and, and I think part of the decline in popularity um, of union organizing was because of that stability, because we because states started to write laws that mandated worker protections. Right. And so those things like a 40 hour work week or, you know, even a 10 minute break, things like that um, have been now worked into many corporate cultures or even you know, many times state law and some federal law that um, that the work that unions had done over time has really become a part of our natural workplace culture. Why are we concerned about, why are we talking about this? Well, we're talking about this because in the state of Tennessee right now, although it was one of the first states to pass a law making right to work a, a law in this state, um, making it harder for unions to organize, there actually is a movement with our current General Assembly to actually change the Tennessee state constitution. There is an amendment that's already passed the state Senate to, uh, to actually solidify the right to work philosophy into our state constitution with the express purpose of making it more difficult for future legislatures to change any of the current laws that we have on the books. As in our no income tax. For example, yes. That is in, in the Constitution. And I had listened to um, an interesting um, summary of that um, activity. And I know that Tennessee is very popular because there is no income tax. But what we found in discussions on this program is it's an, a regressive tax and that the burden uh, falls on the, um, the, the poor or the low income. A lot of people who you know are in poverty, mm -hmm. many of the same expenses on a different level than than the wealthy population. Mm -hmm. If you're in, you know, it doesn't matter what your wage bracket is, what your tax bracket is. If you have a child between the age of zero and maybe three years old, you're probably in diapers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, the so is your child. Well, <laughs> maybe not you. <laughs> Our sister mothers don't even have time to go to the, you know, facilities. <laughs> I had five kids. I've been in diapers. I'm <laughs> kidding. Um, but no, yes, thank you. Uh, but your your children are in diapers um, more than more than likely um, if you have a child between the age of zero and three. And so, um, if you think about the cost of a pack of diapers, I mean, it can cost you, you know, for a single pack of uh, it's been it's been. 10 years since I've had to purchase diapers, but um, even back then, I remember a case of diapers which um, lasted me maybe a week, um, would cost me about $30. Mm -hmm. 
And so $30 on a fixed income is really difficult. But $30 for somebody who is in a high tax bracket, I mean, that's, that's how much they spend on a, you know, a nice meal for lunch, you know? So, um, it's, it's, so that's that regressive tax that a lot of people don't think about, you know. And in states with an income tax, um, there's a balance. It's, it's uh, heard it described as a three-legged uh, stool that you've got pro property taxes, um, um, sales tax, and then income tax, and then your stool can somewhat stay stable. Going back to the point I was going to try to make with this interesting discussion is that when you put something in the Constitution, it's very hard. It's hard to get it in there. I mean, on this situation, it has to be uh, equal legislation on uh, both the House and the Senate. They have to match. And then it uh, has to be approved, you know, by a majority of the voters. It has to be put on ballot. So we're kind of on the beginning uh, of this. This probably wouldn't happen for a couple more years. But I think you have to really consider putting stuff in stone. Yes. Because we, uh, for the income tax, we have so many uh, marginalized people in Tennessee. I mean, we're, we're, we're struggling with all kinds of things, um, healthcare and poverty and unemployment. And um, it probably would have been good to be able to even that out a little bit, but we can't. So yeah. And so now we're talking about putting something else in there that we're going to talk about some things that are a little concerning about big business and corporations and the workers' rights, correct? Yeah, and so when you think about putting, putting the right to work into the Constitution with the expressed purpose of preventing future legislators from changing laws, um, really ties the hands of what our future is going to look like. Um, you know, right now we are in an international pandemic. I don't know if you know that, Sandy. I know that. We are in the middle of an international pandemic, and the economy is um, in the state of Tennessee and across this country um, has been worse than it's been in um, really since the Great Regression of uh, mm -hmm. just several years ago. And you know we've we've reached up to 19% unemployment. I think it's settled back down to about 12%. But prior to the the uh, COVID-19 um, outbreak in Tennessee and um, the economic impacts that that made, you know, we were about three and a half percent unemployment. And so it felt like we were in a really good spot. But what happened during the pandemic is we, we really had an opportunity to shine the light on workers' rights. Mm -hmm. Because there were many employees that continued to have to go to work even as many businesses were shutting down. You know, if you are a white collar worker working in an office, perhaps at an insurance company or, um, you know, in another, um, an accounting business, you have the ability to take your laptop and work from home. Mm -hmm. In many cases, if you are um, on the, you know, in, working in a factory or a low wage worker in a restaurant retail industry, you were either unemployed because your restaurant or retail establishment shut down or you were required to go to work and meet with the public. 
I'm thinking specifically like the grocery store workers. Right. And delivery people. And delivery people. And there were restaurants that continued to be open specifically for delivery. You know, there were, there were people who were required to go to work, um, including many factory workers, which in rural Tennessee, there are quite a few uh, factories out here that produce things or package things. Um, and so that's, that's an important demographic in, in our community. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, Tyson chicken is big in middle Tennessee. Um, and, um, the beef industry, you know, they, they were not protecting their employees. Mm -hmm. And what was happening was the, the spread of COVID in those factories where they continued to require their people to come to work, mm -hmm. where they applied a lot of pressure mm -hmm. on anybody who felt sick and felt like they needed to stay home. Well, guess what happens? If you stay home, we're gonna replace you and you're gonna be unemployed and out of work. And there are a lot of people out of fear for their jobs, out of fear for their own financial stability. You know, um, these are low wage workers and in the middle of an economic crisis when there's not a lot of other job options available, these people went to work, they went to work sick and they didn't have a mask mandate or any kind of, you know, employee-based protections to keep them safe from either their other coworkers or the public that they were interacting with. Mm -hmm. And so we saw, you know, there were some good companies that really stepped forward and provided the proper PPE to their employees. Eventually the government did step forward and help provide some of these protections. But, um, but there were many people who lost their jobs or chose to put their own health and safety over their financial security and left their jobs because they didn't feel safe in the workplace. And so, you know, we really had an opportunity to shine a light on the lack of worker protections in states like Tennessee, where right to work is the name of the game. This union jobs had people fighting for them to make sure that if they went back to work, that they went back safely and that they had the proper protections when they, were, when they were able to go back. They also had protections like sick pay and things like that. So if they did get exposed to COVID and had to isolate for two weeks or more, they would have the sick pay benefit to take care of themselves while they were off. And a word that we've heard a lot with tax cuts and, and things is uh, trickle down. Now, if you think that freedom and choice and rights are good words, how do you feel about trickle down? How is that, that working? Because I don't think it's working very well if we look at the rich, rich uh, corporations and with right to work, you do not have a seat at the table to share in that success. I'm gonna pick on Amazon for a little, a little bit because I see that as a company uh, after the pandemic doubled uh, its um, profits from 3.1 billion to 5.8 billion in the first two quarters because everybody, uh, it's like Christmas. You know, you wanna order something so that there is a little break in the day uh, and a package comes. <laughs> And we fight the urge, even in a rural area, uh, where we couldn't run off to Target to get something, 
we can do that now, not target, but we can order something when we think of it. So they're really profiting from that. Also, Tennessee has provided some tax incentives and breaks. I could get more specific on that. Um, And we've been lucky to attract all those good jobs, but I'm not sure the things are trickling down. I'm not sure um, Apple, Google, you know, we've started to hear some problems with employees not being treated um, fairly or getting the trickle down. Yeah, well, trickle down, it's really interesting that that became a popular term. Like if, I'm, if I want to benefit from an economic theory, I don't want it to trickle down. I want it to flow <laughs> like a river. Manna from heaven. <laughs> um, so it's interesting that, that um, you know, conservative ideology has really latched on to this idea of trickle down economics as a positive thing. Because to me, it sounds very negative. I don't want to drop of what the people have at the top. I want to be able to make enough that, um, that I can sustain myself. And uh, a drop does not feel like I, I'm going to be able to quench my thirst to use the trickle down um, kind of idea. Water. And so, Water. so yeah, um, you know, the trickle, the trickle down economy is really designed that um, I, I remember in my, um, I had a, um, a, class, a U.S. government class when I was in college, and I, I will always remember this visual. She um, she drew a picture. My professor drew a picture of um, kind of a champagne tower. You know, when you have the champagne glasses stacked on top of each other, and you you pour champagne into the top glass. And the idea with trickle down is that when that overflows, it then flows into the next level of employees and then that overflows into the next level employees and eventually everybody's cup is full and runneth over but the reality is especially in states that are um, right to work states that are kind of anti-union in philosophy Mm -hmm. very little ends up trickling down to the bottom you know one of the benefits of unions is that they can fight for a larger um turn right? They can fight for, um, for a larger flow of the profits from that company um, because they have the right to, to organize. Because who's actually making the money? It's not the person at the top. It's the person in the factory that's turning the widget. It's, those factories are miles and miles long. Um, and they, they, have to, they have to move that product so quickly. And they have such a high um, turnover rate um, because they get exhausted. I mean, it's physically hard on your body to work at Amazon. And I know so many people that work there for about three weeks and then are so tired and, and their body is so worn out that they can't work any longer. And Amazon says, okay, thanks. We've already hired three people to replace you. Right. So, um, so, you know, this is the problem with these right to work states is that there are no protections for a good work environment, um, including that profit sharing piece and so the person on the top, when their glass is full, they don't really care how much trickles down to the people underneath. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the philosophy that I've heard so many times from my opponent and from other people, if you don't like your job, if you don't think you're making enough, go out and get yourself another job. Well, guess what? It's really not that easy. Mm-hmm. If it was that easy, everyone would go out and just get another job. We're not all in this together. And I think that there is more and more corporate mentality that, that, trust me, I'll take care of you, very paternalistic. Mm -hmm. Um, And and, uh, 
I'm going to throw in not good for rural areas. The, the, the jobs remain in cities. I mean, this is a, that everyone, uh, jobs, jobs, jobs. Well, when you have a right to work state, you can attract big corporations with many good jobs. And we, and I've got, I can put good in, in parentheses, but you know, as far as advancement, you know, quality of work, quality of life, uh, we're just throwing around jobs, any job. And I think someone in uh, uh, Trump's town hall meeting pointed that out. Yeah, what, I got a job, but it's not a very good one, you know. So, so we have to be cautious uh, about that. Now, the things that I looked at as far as a disadvantage of right to work besides a right to work state, other than the trickle down uh, economy of this, it generally prevents higher wages and benefits. You know, healthcare is a privilege, not a right. Um, average median income may be $6,500 less than a union. There are a lot of states that have right, right to work. All the southern states, of course, where we have high poverty rates and food insecurity and problems with access to health care. So I, so I think kind of the point of our um, back and forth discussion is, well, two things so far. We'll see what else we have. But um, don't put it stone. Let's have yeah. some flexibility. You know, flexibility is a very popular word, you know, too. We want flexibility. We don't want to put stuff in stone. We want flexibility. And the second thing is, you know, we need to ask the hard questions like you and I are doing here today. Are we saying that we've got all the answers? We're just, no. Um, there's just a lot out there. But it cut a lot of things. And I just want to say that um, we did not cut some um, monies to uh, cash grants or bondable pro projects for both Amazon, again, and Volkswagen. We did, however, cut uh, pay raises to teachers, 137 million, yep. um, 38 million for higher education, and 21 million to expand um, services for, uh, for ten, 10 care. We did just delay 42 million for the um, ESA, uh, education savings account, the vouchers to delay that one year. And we still put money in the rainy day fund. Um, I think it's up to a billion dollars is what we've said. I, I just don't know what we're, we're um, using that for. I guess the next pandemic, but the next pandemic will be heaven forbid. Well, well, if this is not a rainy day, I don't know what is. The program here um, and its connection with both the Tennessee Holler that really is holding legislators feet to the fire for uh, accountability yes. and also featuring candidates and, and asking for change. I mean, I'm doing it from, from the rural caucus. Uh, we've had, we've had multiple candidates with their, with their new ideas. And certainly Mariah is looking at that. We could have a legislature if we pushed and, and hired people, right, elected them to office that cared about keeping our workplaces safe, fully funding our public schools, making sure that we had retraining available in times of a pandemic, spent our money on unemployment, you know, instead of putting more money in a rainy day fund, we would be taking care of our citizens across the state and we wouldn't be in the predicament that we're in with increased poverty, incre increased wage disparity, 
and 10 hospitals closing across our state. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it blows my mind that these, you know, these issues that don't affect people on a daily, daily, in their daily life, takes more precedence over the things that actually do. The state of Tennessee does not have a minimum wage. And so we rely on the federal minimum wage, which is in dire need of improving. If you work uh, in, you know, in and, and more states that have right to work laws, have more jobs where they pay the minimum wage. And so the minimum wage, if you work 40 hours a, work, a week at 725 an hour, you get paid $290 a week. You know, that is not enough to pay for a car payment, for a car that runs, nor is it enough to save up for a, a, a cheap car that you buy on the side of the road. There's no money left over by the time you pay your rent, by the, by the time you buy your kids their new pair of shoes, by the time you feed your family, um, and by the time you pay for that, that visit to the quick clinic because you don't have health insurance, because your job doesn't afford it, you know, doesn't pay for it, and Tennessee hasn't expanded Medicaid. So, you know, there's no money at the end of the month when $290 a week is all you get. That's $1,160 a month. By allowing businesses to pay their people less, by allowing them to trickle down as little as possible into the, into the pockets of their workers, what happens is those people making $7.25 an hour are also on food stamps or they're also on Medicaid because they qualify, because they make so little they cannot sustain themselves. Mm -hmm. So now our tax dollars are once again supplementing the big corporations so that they can come to Tennessee. They get big tax breaks to come here and then they get big tax breaks by not paying their people what the people need to survive. Mm -hmm. Then they're criticized. Welfare moms, the welfare queen state, I saw that on Twitter. Yeah. Um, all the hoops that you have to jump through, and then all of a sudden, Penn Cares dropped your child. I mean, it just goes on and on, but it's, it's blaming. I and mean, we put all these barriers to yeah. someone living a, a quality life. For their family. And then the criticism of the kids. The kids are in trouble. They're not showing up for school. They don't do their homework. What else do you have, Mariah? What else do I have? Um, I think we covered a lot of what was in our notes here. The uh, only thing I, I, I said, retraining. Uh, uh, unions can provide some retraining. Oh, yeah. I, I'd like to talk about that. And with safety, but also apprenticeships and building trades. Yeah. So... You know, so when thinking about um, some of the services that unions provide, um, you had mentioned retraining, and I think that's a really important, uh, a important, an important piece because you know, as technology changes, um, as factories change, the equipment that's used um, in the building trades or in in uh, different factories it changes all the time, and so the job expectations change. And one of the things that unions are known for is their training programs. If you belong to a union, part of what you get is the opportunity to um, get the appropriate training 
for the current job that you're in or any future jobs that you have um, that you're interested in. And so training is available. Um, there are apprenticeships. So college is not necessarily required for a lot of union jobs and people don't know that. And these are good paying jobs to become a welder or um, an electrical worker. You don't need to go to college, but you do need appropriate training. And you know that if you are a consumer using an electrician that is a member of the union um, or you know a member of the building trades, you know that you're getting um, a, a worker who, who has been trained, who knows how to do things uh, appropriately, safely, and is going to make sure, going to guarantee their work, where if you just hire some Joe Blow off the street, they may not know, you know, they can say, yeah, I can, I can install that ceiling fan, but if they don't really have the, the backup of the support and the, or the uh, appropriate training, you may not be getting what you pay for. Right. And so, um, so by making sure that um, your, uh, your, the services that you use are uh, when, when available, union certified, union trained, um, workers, you know that they know what they're doing and they're going to be worth every penny. Well, another um, really important thing that I had uh, written down was uh, for unions, um, uh, higher pay uh, for workers overall, 21.3% um, more for women, 26.3% more and African Americans, 27% more. So yes. when we talk about pay inequity, um, one of the things, one of the great benefits of unions is that there is no pay inequity in how union members are paid. Um, there is a rate that they are paid and that is consistent. It's based on years of service. It's not based on uh, an individual contract you negotiate. The union itself negotiates the contract for, um, for what a starting pay might be for that worker. So it doesn't matter your, there's no, um, age discrimination or race, racial discrimination um, or sexism that can go into that, that pay grade. It's already been pre-negotiated for you before you even apply for the job. Although federal law says that they cannot require you to join. Oh, okay. so it's really, a, it's really a, an employer, it's, it's a philosophy that um, makes it harder for unions to form in certain states and so um so yeah so you know the sad thing is i'm a union member i am a member well i'm a member of the i'm an association member of the tennessee education association and the national education association i pay my dues even every month even though i actually haven't been in the classroom for quite some time um, i do that because i believe in the organization of employees and they need money to you know to fund their staff so they can fight for the rights of teachers and so i continue to be a card carrying member of the education association and um, that is an association which is different than a union um, and um, but a lot of the same rules um, and laws apply to both so my husband is a member of the musicians union and so as a member of the musicians union, you know, he does have monthly dues that he pays, but because of that, he knows he has pre-negotiated mm -hmm. contracts that if he gets a job through the musicians union, 
then you know he's going to be paid a, an equitable wage and he's not going to have to he's not going to he's going to know that he's going to be making the same as the other people on the job where if he's negotiating that on their own there could be huge wage disparities um but you know based on what individual musicians might be ba being paid and so um, so both of us are union members. I come from a strong union family. And so I do believe in unions as a method to um, to organize their workers and to fight for workers' rights. We're advising caution in the right to work issue um, and to, you know, kind of follow some. I think that, that in a right to work state, you, it's hard to get a, a union in and that we may be really wanting to look at that a little closer as the corporate business environment changes. Yes. We want that um, flexibility. flexibility. And the other thing is, is um, to ask questions um, to, because I, I think this quote, but nobody was nobody's asking the hard questions anymore we're just and we've given a couple examples you know jobs oh the job this is going to be jobs ask the hard questions keep up with the information um don't be careful being caught up with words like it's a job it's a right it's a freedom you know and it's 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 so easy to look stuff up mariah phillips state representative District 37, how can we get in touch with you and where's your donate button? Absolutely. So I am Mariah Phillips and I'm working hard for the hardworking people of Tennessee. And so I need you to work hard with me so that we can win this seat. This is a very purple part of Rutherford County, kind of the northwest corner of Rutherford County, Murfreesboro, Smyrna, Laverne. And um, there are some um, uh, the best way to get in touch with me is you can email me at mariah at mariah4tn.com. All of my links are mariah4tn. So you can go to my website and donate there, sign up to volunteer, mariah4tn.com. And it's the number and four. Did you it's say the number, four. number four? Okay. That's right. Mariah4tn, number four. Um, please get involved in this campaign. Um, donate if you can. We really have a chance to win this seat, and the more seats we can win across the state of Tennessee, the better it will be for everyone. That's so, right. So even if you're not fortunate enough to live in Mariah's district, they have a similar platform. Hey, Sandy, I really enjoyed being on the podcast with you today. I really love listening to all the information that you have to share. Um, you have a really unique way to communicate the issues that are happening in rural Tennessee. And that's something that um, isn't exposed enough, you know, across the state. And so thank you for what you do. Thank you for to the Murfreesboro Holler, um, the Tennessee Holler Network, um, and uh, the other affiliates across the state for really communicating what's important to real people here in Tennessee. And, um, and thank you, Sandy, for always being awesome. Okay. You're a rock star. And thank you for being here today. Always fun to talk with um, Mariah. She will never lead you astray. She is the most honest person. I mean, really, I, I think about that, you know, all the time in our culture of uh, misleading and, and worse um, statements. And also thank you for, you know, taking, uh, giving the credit, the Tennessee Holler. 
I don't have to do that, although I do want to encourage uh, people to listen to the to new um, episodes of um, Porch Politics which and, and Grits, Girls Raised in the South. Those those gals are really zany. Oh, yeah. So, alrighty. Thanks. Thanks.